This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is May the 19th, 2023, and it is Friday, 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 for you anyway. I'm actually recording this on Monday, May the 15th. I'll give you the little background, how we're making the sausage in the back end here on this one. Um, Since I do have uh, Exit and Build this week, Specifically this weekend, uh, Thursday through Sunday, uh, I pre-recorded this show for you guys. The only reason I even really point that out is two things. One, you're accustomed to hearing the Ron Paul Liberty highlights on the lead-off of the show, and that won't happen this week because Chris over at the Ron Paul group just didn't have enough material from the week available to put a segment together for us yet. So uh, that's why they're not there. It's not that they're uh, going away or anything like that. They'll be back next week. The other reason I'm letting you know this is just on the offshoot that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, yesterday, you know, something crazy or this morning that you're listening to this as a new show, something crazy happened and I didn't talk about it that was in the news or something like, I can't believe you didn't talk about it because it didn't happen yet for me anyway. So uh, pre-recorded instead of live for a change. What do we have today? Uh, Dr. Ken Berry's got the lead segment today. I actually, Ken usually saves up. 10, 15 segments, bangs them all out in a day, and I don't hear from him again for two or three months. Uh, He kind of just fills up the magazine, so to say, and when we're done firing shots, he does it again. He just batches work, a very efficient way to do things. But this one came in this this morning, so this Monday, and I wanted this answered right away. His wife is pregnant with triplets, and her doctor is saying, you need to eat lots of carbohydrates, and been keto up till now. I I don't think that's true. So I asked Ken, can you can you go ahead and knock this one out right away? And he was good enough to do that. Sean Mills will talk about building a solar energy starter system and leaving room for eventual add-on plans. Jeff Lawton will talk about using rock as riprap for erosion protection on swales and how you shouldn't really have this problem in the first place and what to do about it. Amy Dingman will talk about do you really need a dedicated homeschool space in your house? I don't know that you do, but I can see a lot of reasons you might want to. We have a designated area that homeschooling gets done, but it's not really a homeschool space. I have pushed my wife to make the space upstairs the hell out of my way, but I have lost that discussion, and so I let it go. But maybe Amy has some thoughts on that. Doc Bones has uh, a question on dealing with fluid buildup in a child's ears, and this person is looking at the potential to maybe have tubes uh, in, in the ears. I actually had that done when I was like five, six years old. So I actually have some end of, uh, firsthand information about it. And as it was done a long time ago, like 44, 45 years ago. So it's probably, uh, the same procedure or better, I would think today than it was back then. It wasn't really a big deal. Um, I had the, the trifecta though, that kids used to get back then. Like, Sore throat, problem hearing, so adenoids, which they don't take out anymore, tonsils, but they're nowhere near as quick to take out anymore, and a tube in one ear all at the same time. So it sucked, but based on my memory of it, uh, it sucked because of the tonsils more than anything else. The ears, I probably wouldn't even have uh, 
really noticed very much. It wasn't that big a deal, though there is one thing to know about if you have this procedure done, and it might make you pick what time of year you choose to have it done. So I'll talk about that. Nicole Sauce will talk about setting up for outdoor canning with propane and good old school conventional canning. And I will talk about a quote of the day, and I'm going to expand it to prepping as a whole. This is from Arthur C. Clarke. Human judges can show mercy, but against the laws of nature, there is no appeal. This is a big part, I think, of why we prep. And I'll talk about this in a couple ways. Uh, The consequences of doing stupid things and surviving things like being attacked by somebody. And a psychology that comes to play that people have to get past really fast in that type of survival situation. And uh, we'll dig into that a bit. With that, let's go ahead and drop right on in and hear from Dr. Ken on keto when you're pregnant. Do you really need lots of carbs when you're pregnant? I'm thinking no, but what does Ken have to say? Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Spencer. Spencer says, my fiance is pregnant with triplets. The doc says she needs to eat more carbs than a keto diet. Is this true? Uh, first of all, let's take this as they come because there's several questions. Uh, number one, does she need more carbs than a keto diet would provide? Absolutely not. As long as she's eating somewhere between 20 and 50 total grams of real one ingredient whole food carbs a day, preferably low carb vegetables and berries, she's getting more than enough dietary carbohydrates to help not only her body develop, but the body of these three future beautiful geniuses uh, develop. She's currently taking Garden of Life raw prenatal, Nordic natural prenatal DHA, choline and grass-fed whey protein shakes. Is this enough? Uh, Those are probably fine. I don't think they're going to hurt her at all. They may or may not help. So out of an abundance of caution, I'd say, yeah, keep taking those. But she needs to be getting good sources of DHA in her diet from actual food. Uh, I have a video about DHA-rich foods. She needs to be getting plenty of choline for sure. She can get that from meat and eggs. Uh, She needs to be getting plenty of folate. I have a video about folate-rich foods on my YouTube channel. Uh, So she needs to basically be filling her plate with fatty meat and eggs with the yolk. Hopefully all that is pastured and grass-fed if you can afford that. If not, it's fine. Uh, We know you're not an OBGYN, but what would you recommend she take and do? Also, there's a book I would recommend that you get immediately and read. There's also an audible. It's called Real Food for Pregnancy by Lily Nichols. That's available on Amazon as a paperback or as an audible. Uh, She needs to not portion control at all. She needs to not calorie restrict. She is going to gain maybe 50 pounds with this pregnancy, and that is absolutely fine, normal, and healthy. She she needs to eat until she's comfortably stuffed in two or three meals a day. She is eating for four, and so she does not need to restrict her intake whatsoever. Now, when it comes to snacks and high-carbohydrate, highly-processed food, she needs to limit that completely because that in no way helps her body be stronger, nor does it help these three future leaders grow and become healthy whatsoever. She does not need any of the snacks 
from the baby stores or are the snacks that are promoted uh, on all of the websites for expecting moms. None of that stuff will help her develop strengthen her body or develop these beautiful babies that are soon to be with us. I hope this helps. I've got lots of information about the food that you should eat on my YouTube channel. Also, Nisha's channel has multiple videos of what she ate while she was pregnant with both Beckett and Bonnie Blue, who are both doing pretty damn well. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. See you guys next time. So I, I completely agree with everything Ken said, but it, this is one of those places where I'm really glad to have an expert panel, and specifically an expert panel that has two medical doctors. Um, since this was Ken's wheelhouse, I sent it to him. I've got one from Doc Bones uh, later today in his wheelhouse. I don't like to give advice at this level uh, when we're talking about people's kids and stuff. I, I'm very grateful that we have a doc uh, that can talk about this stuff at that level. And, uh, I, again, thank you to Ken for uh, knocking this one out instantly. It's not what he normally does for us. And he did it because of the time sensitivity of it before these people start making decisions because some dumbass doctor who follows what Big Pharma and Big Food tells them to say says those things and then they buy into them. Anyway, I also have the DHA, DHA Rich Foods video in the show notes right under Ken's segment along with the folate rich foods there's several of both so I did the ones that are most recent from 2023 and the real foods for pregnancy book I have a link to that as well uh, that you can find all in today's audio notes again for episode 3304 moving on let's talk about building a solar energy system but doing it kind of as a starter system on a, on a minimal budget and making sure that we've left the potential to expand the system down the road, and there's no one that could do a better job on answering that than Sean Mills. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com, and I've got a question today from John off of the Telegram channel, and John says, what's the cost-effective but expandable way to start with some solar panels on a detached garage with plans for adding on later? Well, first you want to get a small charge controller. You can get a starter charge controller off of Amazon for under $100. The charge controller is what takes your solar power and converts it into the most effective uh, charging profile for the battery bank. Then you want to add your few used solar panels. I say used because buying a used panel or two is way better bang for your buck than buying a 100-watt Renogy panel for $125. I've talked to a lot of people who start with the Harbor. <coughs> Excuse me with the Harbor Freight or the Renogy starter kit. And while I'm super glad that they got started with something, I also cringed a little bit because I knew they could get two to three times the power for the same cost per panel. Look on Craigslist or Facebook, Facebook Marketplace. Um, you should be able to find someone around you that's selling used solar panels for relatively cheaply. If you check Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace and no one is selling solar panels near you, you need to send me an email at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyhomestead.com so I can send you a pallet of solar panels and we can start a new business. Uh, <laughs> you should not have a problem finding something within about a 45-minute drive of you for something around 25 cents a watt. Um, the biggest issue with a small system is the cost of the batteries. Now, with that being said, you could grab a couple of 6-volt golf cart batteries from Sam's Club and set up a small 12-volt system. Um, you, you know, you could even use a small little $200 inverter that's going to be 
that's going to get you something like 12 to 2,000 watts, so 12 volts in, uh, 120 uh, volts out at a 2,000 watt maximum. And so you'd, you'd be all in for that system for about 900 bucks. Um, and, you know, it's probably going to generate, assuming you can get a couple, something around 250 watt panels, it's going to generate about 1,000 watts a day. And so that's a great way to get started. Um, you know, you want to be careful with the batteries because that $200 inverter is not going to necessarily protect the batteries. So you have to be the person protecting the batteries. Um, now you could step up to a slightly larger charge controller to begin with. Um, you know, go to something that's closer to $400 and then it's easy to add more solar and more batteries uh, to that system. Um, you could step up to about an $800 inverter um, at a later date and you could add grid or generator backup for the batteries and even add more solar and more batteries. Um, so, you know, from there, if you'd stepped up your charge controller, stepped up your inverter, added the solar and <coughs> the batteries, um, at that point, you would probably be adding another inverter. Uh, so going from the one $800 inverter to two $800 inverters, uh, to either double the wattage or maybe even to do split phase. And at that point, you could then double the batteries in the solar panels again with another, um, solar charge controller. There are some $800 inverters on the market right now that will act as a um, charge controller as well, the all-in-ones that I talked about in a previous answer, uh, but you're going to have to have a uh, grid or a generator backup tied into those uh, to make that as efficient as possible. Another good thing to do with just a little bit of solar is to run DC water heating elements. Um, it's kind of nice because the amount of energy needed to raise one gallon of water, one degree is well known. So you can pretty much figure out on a daily basis, how much water heating you can get based on a given, uh, starting temperature and a given volume of water. Um, you know, you can do stuff with fans, solar direct fans and things like that. But, um, I really think that, you know, for less than a thousand dollars to get a couple solar panels, small charge controller, a couple six volt batteries, wired in parallel to give you 12 volts and a small, you know, 2000 watt inverter is a great way to get started. So hopefully that answers your question, John. Uh, if you guys have questions, send them in to Jack and I will continue to get them answered. Thank you. So I, I completely agree with everything Ken said, but it, this is one of those places where I'm really glad to have an expert panel and specifically an expert panel that has two medical doctors. Um, since this was Ken's wheelhouse, I sent it to him. I've got one from Doc Bones. Uh, later today in his wheelhouse. I don't like to give advice at this level uh, when we're talking about people's kids and stuff. I, I'm very grateful that we have a doc uh, that can talk about this stuff at that level. And uh, I again, thank you to Ken for uh, knocking this one out instantly. It's not what he normally does for us. And he did it because of the time sensitivity of it before these people start making decisions because some dumbass doctor who follows what big pharma and big food tells them to say says those things and then they buy into them. Anyway, I also have the DHA, DHA Rich Foods video in the show notes right under Ken's segment along with the folate rich foods. There's several of both. So I did the ones that are most recent from 2023 and the real food for pregnancy book. I have a link to that as well. Uh, that you can find all in today's audio notes again for episode 3304 moving on. Let's talk about building a solar energy system, but doing it kind of as a starter system on a, on a minimal budget 
and making sure that we've left the potential to expand the system down the road. And there's no one that could do a better job on answering that than Sean Mills. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan. And um, I've got a question about using a rock, uh, 9-inch to 12-inch rock, as a riprap uh, to control erosion on swales. That's uh, sandy soil in Colorado, high country. And they've eroded uh, their old swales and they've been eroded by cattle. So you shouldn't be grazing cattle on the swales um, because they are going to cause erosion. So that's been the main problem probably. Um, but what their question is, um, should they put landscape fabric underneath the rock uh, because there is some clay and sand mix apparently and, and they think the rock will sink in um, and um, their thoughts are that the fabric could hold the rock up. It, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you can go either way. You just want to make sure that the water doesn't go under the fabric and cause a sheet flow underneath the fabric and then destabilise it that way. You really want stability on the first overflow point um, and just below. So what I often do is I just put in the rock and then um, concrete between them. I just get a, a, a wet concrete mix, mix and, and just slurry in concrete between all the stones and make a, a, a concreted in um, riprap. It doesn't have to look that pretty. It'll all settle down over time. But you can just push it in by hand with gloves if you want and push all the concrete in between all the rocks once you've got them in position and it'll just sort of lock it down and then take that over the spillway and down the other side for a bit and then just let it go um, seed into it if you can and, and get some roots in between the rocks and it doesn't really matter if the water comes over and it's gone downhill away from the level of the water in the swale um, that it chokes a little bit and diffuses a bit through vegetation um, and um, the roots will sort of hold the rocks together and, and, and take some of the aggressive action out of the water. Ideally, the water comes over the spillway and then starts to spread and widen, and that, that diffuses the, the energy out of it and pacifies the water. So um, even putting like, large clumping grasses or clumping canes or even small bamboos or... Um, and anything really that's easy to grow in between the rocks is kind of holding them together with the roots and creating sort of a, 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 um, a water filter and pacifier on the lower side. But if you go for the landscape fabric, as long as you tuck it right in and make sure it's like really contacting on the ground and, and keyed right in, it could work okay as well. But um, why worry about a few volunteer plants coming in amongst it? Um, but concrete in between the stones, definitely good on the top and then the uh, first first slope of the riprap uh, swale spillway where the water's got a bit of um, velocity and as soon as it gets below the mound and further down, uh, uh, it pacifies quite easily just with the rocks and a bit of vegetation. There you go. Uh, good stuff from Jeff. Uh, not really an ad, but just a, a different... Um, way of using rock this way. So one of my mainframe swales, the top large swale in my food forest, there is a hose um, bib right at the the end of it that's 
closest to the house. The, 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 where everything kind of begins, the overflow for that soil is completely the opposite end. Uh, it's about it's a six foot wide and about one foot deep at the deepest swale. And uh, occasionally I will flood that swale, at least a, not maybe the whole swale, but I will, I will put some flooding into that swale in a variety of ways. One is sometimes I'm doing an, uh, a water change on one of my ponds, and I'll put a siphon hose or a hose attached to a pump uh, at that end of the swale. Uh, the other way I'll do it, sometimes we'll like, I've got baby birds and I don't want them going into the water tubs that the ducks use and drowning themselves. And I know if they have water, they'll be less likely to do that. I'll just throw a hose in there and turn it on for 15, 20 minutes and partially uh, flood that swale. Well, when you put a hose or a siphon hose in a swale like that, and you've got moving water in one space. That's not what a swale's designed to provide catchment for. It's designed for sheeting water in uh, off the back slope from rain across the ground. That's why it's on level, and it, that's why they don't erode. You put that hose in one place, you can get that erosion. So what I did is I have all this excess rock around, and I, it was a dual thing. I wanted to get rid of it, and I wanted to stabilize the area. So like the first... 15-ish, 20-ish feet of that swale is all rocked in with the little chunk limestone rocks. And it's worked perfectly. And it's actually started to sediment in a bit, but it doesn't really matter because it prevents the erosion. So there are reasons and ways that you might apply rocking to swale work. One of the things I have learned about rocking, uh, though, is unless you're really building a true dry stacked wall, like rocking edges is a terrible idea. All it creates is a place that's hard to weed eat, uh, hard to weed, hard to control, a, a very productive edge that grows a lot of things you don't want, and it prevents you from just like saying, okay, from this point over, I'll just run the mower over it, because uh, then, of course, you destroy your mower on the rocks. So pretty much every place other than in a swale that I've used rocks like as a liner on the edge of something, I, I, I really need to get rid of it, and I, I've, it was a type 1 error but it's not. And the reason it's not a type 1 error is even though I've uh, regretted doing it, uh, and even though I haven't taken the time and like prioritized changing it, it's not hard to change. It's a wheelbarrow and a couple hours work in a few different places. Anyway, just a thought on that. Think about rock uh, for what it can do for you, but also think about the fact that it may not be the best thing to use in every situation, and it may actually, instead of solving a problem, in other words, taking, I have this excess rock, it is a problem, the solution is use it this way, it may turn the problem into a bigger problem. Anyway, what the other thing I did with the rock, though, the other end of that same swale, I had a lot, a lot of big rock I couldn't get rid of, didn't know what to do with it, uh, I put it in the far end of the swale, not really to prevent erosion, I kind of made a stack, and I made a lizard rockery, for habitat for my lizards in it. And that's worked well. Since it's in the swale, I'm not trying to mow it or anything like that. All right, with that, let's move along and hear from Amy Dingman on, do you, does your house need a designated homeschool space if you homeschool? And what are the trade-offs in doing it or not doing it? Hey, everybody, this is Amy Dingman with the Farmer's Kind of Life podcast, and I'm here to answer a question that I've received a couple times about having a homeschool space in your house? Do you need to have like a spot that is your homeschool spot, a room that is your homeschool spot, a space to put all your things? How how do we deal with that, Amy? What did you do and what do you suggest? First of all, there are some reasons that people want a designated homeschool space in their home. Maybe you don't want a giant world map on your living room wall. Maybe 
um, homeschooling for you is really messy and you're someone who likes it to be not messy. And so the mess of homeschooling kind of threatens your sanity a little bit. Maybe you've spent a lot of time on Pinterest and you look at all those really cool homeschool spaces that, that people are coming up with and you're kind of envious of that. And so you think, oh, we should have our own homeschool room in our house. There are lots of reasons that homeschool parents want their own homeschool space. It's really good if you need boundaries. It's really good if you have maybe a family situation that requires it. Maybe you are running a business from home. Maybe you need to separate stuff for your own sanity. There are also different ways that people want to use a designated homeschool space. Some people want it because they want a spot to keep their stuff. So like the curriculum and the supplies, and then they want to be able to shut the door on all of that. Some people want a homeschool space to actually do their stuff in. They want a designated place to do the experiments and the art projects and not have to move stuff every night to set the table for supper. You know what I'm saying? So when we started our homeschooling journey in 2007, my parents lived with us for several years um, during the beginning of our homeschool journey. And so that situation in and of itself dictated the way we set up some of our homeschooling things. So here, here are a couple different things we did as far as how we organize stuff or what our spaces look like. Um, and, and at the end, you will, you will figure out what exactly we learned about all this. So one of the things we did was we had all of our homeschooling supplies shoved in an upstairs closet. And our learning took place in many spots all around the house, but our supplies we're in the least convenient place in the house, okay? But it was the space that was available, so that's just where we shoved everything. It was super disorganized. It also happened to be right next to where my night shift working husband was sleeping, so I would go dig through the closet to find craft supplies or that one book I was looking for, and I was always worried that we were going to wake him up. We never did, but I always worried about it. So that was the first kind of setup. Then we decided, you know what, let's move the books and the supplies and everything into the living room. And it was really nice to have all of our books and our supplies located in the same place that we hung out most of the time. But it also left all of our stuff in the middle of everything all the time. And at the point we were sharing this home with my parents, it also meant that other people sometimes felt they couldn't be in the living room when we were doing school. And sometimes they even felt like they couldn't be on the main floor since we had such an open house plan. That wasn't any issue with us. That was an issue more with them, but it was something that, that worked into what we were doing. The next setup that we did was we had everything in our sort of kind of finished basement, okay? This was nice because it, it set up these necessary boundaries around our school time and set us apart from other family members so we could concentrate on what we were doing and it made it quiet so dad could sleep. But being in the basement meant there were no windows and we felt shut off from everything else that was going on, which was super ironic because at that point, what we thought we needed was to be shut off from everything else so we could focus on whatever we were digging into that day. So that, that was a lesson right there. When you don't have a homeschool room, you can talk yourself into believing that everything you're struggling with about homeschooling would just be fixed if you had that space to call your own. So eventually we did get our own homeschool room on the main level of our house, a place to stick everything. My parents moved out and uh, we used the space that had been their bedroom to be our homeschool room. It was an actual room with a table and chairs and a couch and shelves and maps and a timeline on the wall and dry erase boards all over and a huge closet to store everything. And it was everything that we wanted. And we almost never used it. Oddly enough, the biggest thing that we learned in that one year with our amazing homeschool room was this. 
When you have a tree fort, when you have a hayloft, when you have a swing, when you have a comfy couch, you don't need and you're not going to use a homeschool room like you think you're going to. See, the couch in the living room was more comfortable. It was bigger. We all fit better together on it. The table in the dining room was bigger. It was more sturdy than the one we had in the homeschool room. When we were in the homeschool room, we couldn't see the barn. We couldn't see the chickens. We couldn't see the cats. We couldn't see if someone was in our driveway. And even though it was really fabulous to have that huge closet to store stuff in, we ended up dragging it out all over the house anyway. So we did end up with our designated homeschool space that we thought was going to be so great. And we did learn something in it. We learned that mostly we didn't need it. So as we grew in our homeschooling and got more comfortable with ourselves as homeschooling, just figuring out what we wanted to do, we just did everything all over. And it made a mess sometimes. And sometimes we had to shove it somewhere else. You know, sometimes we were outside. Sometimes we were sprawled out on the living room floor. Sometimes we took over the kitchen table. And as your kids get older and more independent in their work, you you may find that your need, quote unquote, need for a homeschool space changes. You're probably going to find that you need less stuff, which is often because you have this purge when you realize you're never going to use all the billions of things that you've picked up at curriculum sales and use book sales. You're probably also going to find that your older kids do a lot of stuff apart from you. So attempting to shove them into this space that is designated for learning doesn't make any sense. And really all of this is to say that that's the part of homeschooling we need to be okay with. Didn't we decide to homeschool because we didn't want to be bound by the four walls of a classroom? Homeschooling is expansive. It takes up this huge part of your life because it is life. So it's totally okay if homeschooling takes over a huge part of your house as well. I just want to give you that permission if you need someone's permission to make this happen. It is okay if homeschooling takes over your entire house, your entire property, all the space you have. Let it be big. It's okay. So there you go. That's my answer to the question I always get about having a homeschool space in your home. That's just my two cents, what we figured out with all those years of homeschooling. Thanks for sending in your questions. Send me some more. Check out my stuff at afarmishkindoflife.com. I love talking to you guys. Talk to you again soon. I don't know. I don't fully agree. I would love for the homeschooling to happen in one of the upstairs rooms. Um, for the same reason that when my kid was young, uh, my grandchildren's dad, um, that we had a two-story house, and he had kind of like an upstairs living room that was like his, his play area where his friends and his played video games and all that stuff, just because all the stuff was out of my way. So I'm I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. But... Uh, I think this is an individual decision to be made, and it's been made here, and I'm wrong. <laughs> it's not going to be my way. Anyway, moving along, uh, we, we do pretty much have homeschool overtaking the whole house, and it is okay. It is okay. Uh, and next up, we have a question for uh, Doc Bones on dealing with a kiddo that has a lot of fluid buildup in their ears that may have to go uh, through some pretty basic surgery uh, to rectify the situation. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Stanley, who writes, Any suggestions for persistent fluid buildup in a toddler's ears? 
My four-year-old continues to have fluid buildup in her ears, not from swimming or anything like that, just trouble draining. Doctor's form of treatment is allergy meds and antibiotics for inevitable ear infection every two to four months. We have an appointment in three months, first available, to visit a pediatric ENT who will likely lead to tubes. I have found staying on top of nose blowing to be helpful, but not a solution. Do you have any other suggestions we should investigate? Keywords to Google, etc. More details. There are at least a half a dozen anecdotes about failures of modern medical systems to unpack and above. We'll skip that, but boy, it hits differently when it impacts your little one. Anyway, as always, greatly appreciate the show and what you experts do. Stanley, there's nothing so painful as seeing a small child in pain, and I'm sorry to say your problem is not uncommon. Our daughters had similar issues at the age of six months, and that lasted more than two years for each. Indeed, the most common cause of earache is an infection of the middle ear called otitis media. Normally, the eardrum is shiny and pearly gray in appearance. When there's an infection in the middle ear, however, the eardrum will appear dull when examined with an otoscope. This is because there's pus and inflammatory fluid behind it, probably due to a blockage in the structure known as the eustachian tube. This is different from swimmer's ear, which is an infection of the external ear canal. Standard treatment often includes amoxicillin or other oral antibiotics. Advil or ibuprofen is commonly used for pain, although ear drops with a combination pain med and anesthetic are also an option. No one knows exactly why one kid gets more infections than another or why one kid's ear infections may linger, but the following factors may raise the risk. Daycare. Kids in daycare are exposed to more germs and bugs. Living with a smoker or in polluted air. Family history of ear infections. Allergies. Siblings. Having one or more siblings means more germs brought into the household. Living in areas with long winters. Gender. Boys tend to get more ear infections than girls. And age. Children younger than 18 months are more prone to ear infections than older kids. Oh, also premature birth. Children who are born prematurely tend to have more ear infections. Otitis media is more common in infants and toddlers. This is why mothers are always cautioned against bottle or breastfeeding with their baby lying flat. You can expect otitis media to present with one or more of the following symptoms. Pain, more so when lying down. Difficulty sleeping, crying and irritability in infants. Fever, loss of appetite, loss of balance. Holding or pulling the affected ear. Drainage of fluid from the affected ear. Difficulty hearing from the affected ear. If your child has three episodes in six months or four in a year with at least one in the past six months, then you've got a case of recurrent ear infections. That's what you've got, Stanley. To combat chronic ear infections, you can take these steps. Be sure that your child is sitting up to drink from a bottle or sippy cup. If the infection is caused by a hole in the eardrum, avoid swimming and prevent water from entering the eardrum during showers or baths. You've got to protect it with a cotton ball coated, let's say, in Vaseline. And make sure your child is not exposed to secondhand smoke or air pollution. But you know all this, Stanley, and still your child is not well. I'm sure she's been given amoxicillin. It's the antibiotic of choice. In children, use 80 to 90 milligrams per kilogram per day in two divided doses for 10 days. That's usually effective for small children. Five to seven days of treatment is usually enough for children over two years of age. In penicillin allergies, clindamycin, a 30 to 40 milligrams per kilogram per day in three divided doses, is an option worth trying if she hasn't been on it yet. It should be noted that some pediatricians treat with antibiotics only in prolonged or severe cases, for example, where there is a high fever. It should be noted that some otitis is caused by a viral infection and not cured with antibiotics. This is another possibility that they've confused a viral otitis in your daughter's case with a bacterial one. A number of natural remedies are indeed available. Although I have absolutely no scientific data that they're effective, 
Some options include a mix of rubbing alcohol and vinegar in equal quantities, or alternatively, 3% hydrogen peroxide. Place three or four drops into the affected ear, wait five minutes, then tilt the head and drain out the mixture. Or you can use plain warm olive oil, or make a mixture adding one drop of essential oils like tea tree, eucalyptus, peppermint, thyme, lavender, garlic, or mullein to the olive oil, and warm the oil slightly, place two or three drops in the ear canal, then wait for a few minutes and drain. A cotton ball with two or three drops of eucalyptus oil may also be secured to the ear while the child is sleeping. Also, you can use a mild heat source to the area. If you are off the grid, dip a sock or other absorbent material into heated water. Wring it out and place it on the outside of the affected ear. One good thing about otitis media in kids is that it should resolve on its own over time. Other treatments such as tubes might be needed if your child is just having too much pain and you just can't wait. This is called a meringotomy. Tubes can be inserted into the eardrum to provide another drainage route for the middle ear if the eustachian tubes aren't working properly. Also, enlarged tonsils, by the way, may be blocking the opening of the eustachian tube in the oral cavity and not allowing free drainage. Tonsillectomy is sometimes recommended in these cases. I have to say that sometimes these tubes fall out. Indeed, actually, they're supposed to fall out after about 12 months, but some kids have to undergo the procedure more than once. Still, if they free your child from persistent ear infections, it could have a huge impact on her quality of life. I wouldn't rule out getting it done. Good luck to your little one, and hopefully over time, it will go away. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Just real quick on the surgery that's done at times when this problem is chronic and doesn't seem to want to go away. Um, It is a really simple surgery, and usually uh, about two hours after it's over, uh, you and your kiddo would be home. Like I said, when I was a kid, I had it done in one ear that was chronic uh, when I was about five years of age, uh, along with adenoids and tonsils. And I, as long ago as that was, being a five-year-old kiddo, I remember the misery of waking up after a tonsillectomy. It was, and I'm sure as a kid, you know, it hurts more than it really does. Uh, but I remember it. I remember waking up. I remember the anesthesia uh, wearing off and like the, your head just ringing and not being able to sit up without falling back over. And I remember my throat being in a lot of pain. I remember zero pain from my ears. And apparently that's, that's typical that there's no real pain from this. When they do this, what they do is they they go into the ear and they make a very small incision in the eardrum. And it did not adversely affect my hearing either. They put a very small tube, think of it like a bulkhead, that allows fluid from behind the eardrum to get out into the ear. And usually this isn't something that's done like for long term, uh, as in like when when it's time for it to be done, you don't go do it again. Uh, I had it done once, never had it done again. What will happen is somewhere between 12 and 18 months after you get this done, it will fall out on its own, or often they'll have you come in to an ear, nose, and throat specialist who will say it's been in there long enough, we're in good shape now, and they'll remove it. They'll go in and just pull it out. Mine fell out but stayed in the ear, so I remember I went to the doctor, I think it was like eight months after I had it done, and like he went in my ear and basically it was stuck to the ear because I just pulled it out. And, and that didn't hurt either. And I wasn't exactly the kid that was like, do whatever you want, I'm fine. Like, I didn't really like doctors or whatever. And it was pretty not a big deal for me, the whole thing. The thing is, 
they generally say it's okay to swim without earplugs in pools that have chlorine. Today they say that. When I was a kid, they said no, no, no swimming at all without an earplug. And I went, and they say definitely oceans and lakes, you should have an earplug. I remember going and having an earplug made where they molded it to fit your ear perfectly. But, of course, a little kid grows across six months. And I remember being at the beach and my earplug falling out and seeing it land in the water and being like, I'm going to get in trouble. And it was was gone forever and never found it again. And I I, I remember it being, I don't know how much it was, but I remember it being enough that uh, adults were unhappy about the whole thing and then ended up using, like, the waxy ones that you buy in a store that you kind of mold into your ear yourself. So the one thing I would say is if a doctor and you decide that this needs to be done, if it's not something that needs to be done immediately, it might be something you kind of push toward the end of summer if your kid's a swimmer. And then hopefully by the time you come around to the next swimming season, you're close to being done with it. And that would negate that whole thing. I don't know that it's that big of a deal, though. Um, And it may not be necessary. And any surgery has risks, but I think this is... Far less risky than an appendectomy or a tonsillectomy or or something of that effect. This is a really simple thing, but they do use general anesthesia, which means your kid will be knocked out and not have a clue what's going on, which is probably best because you don't want somebody moving because when something touches your eardrum, it sounds very loud even though it isn't. So uh, that would be the, it is a general anesthesia procedure. That's just my thoughts on it. Next up, canning outdoors with Nicole Sauce. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a question from Justin. And he he asks, what tips and recommendations for outdoor pressure canning on a propane gas burner do you have? My wife and I are going to up our canning game. All right. To, <laughs> by moving the pressure canning out to an outdoor propane burner to pressure can. Do you have a recommendation for a burner that you like? And what sorts of tips and organization and efficiency ideas do you have for setting up our pressure canning? Thanks, Nicole. Okay, here's what I got. So I've been pressure canning outside for a long time, and I started with a a stove that was just like my camp stove, right? And that kind of worked, but didn't work great. It took forever to heat up. And then I tried a series of other burners until I have today's solution. I will share with that with you at the very end of this. I'm going to start with tips. So if you're going to set up an outdoor canning area, I think the most important thing is make it a dedicated space that's just for canning so you don't get other things mixed in there and in your way. Because if it's like a combination canning and planting and whatever space, what often happens is you get in the middle of a project, you get interrupted, and then it's time to can and then your potted plants are in the way. Or you were doing a barbecue setup for tomorrow and it was your combination outdoor kitchen and canning space. And now your stuff for the barbecue tomorrow is in the way and then you don't can or vice versa. Your canning stuff is in the way and then you don't do whatever else you're supposed to do. So if you're really wanting to up your canning game, I would say make space in your life. Make space by dedicating it 100% to canning. It will make everything go faster. And when it goes faster, you get more done. I also think it's important if you can do it to have a shaded area. This is because it's okay to like boil the stuff in the sun, but when you're cooling the jars, it's great to cool the jars outside as well as do the canning outside. If the sun's beating down on them, that slows the process down 
and light exposure to canned goods degrades the quality of the canned goods. It's not a safety risk unless it brings them up to enough temperature that it breaks the seal that you've made, but it is, it's just not ideal. So find a shaded area as well. Now I like to have access to rinse water that could look like a hose in one of those cheapy plastic utility sinks. It could look like just a hose in a ditch. You could put an actual kitchen sink outside. That's what I've done over time and just plumb it into your hose. But having rinse water is great because especially if you're doing prep outside as well, your hands get dirty, you want to rinse them off. And then if there's no water or not even a tub of water, which is your backup plan if you don't have running water where you're doing this, then it's a pain in the neck. Now, as far as setup and flow, I like to go from left to right where my prep is on the left, my canning is in the middle, and my cooling area is in the on the right. So boom, boom, boom. Now, you may be a lefty and you may prefer to go right to left. Decide that for yourself. But the prep area I have is relatively small. It's enough space to hold 12 mason jars in a very solid area so that I can load them into the canner. I actually load my jars inside my house with the air conditioning on on the hottest days of the summer because it's very pleasant that way. And then I take them out on a tray that fits in my prep area. And then I load them into the canner left to right. I run the canner and I pull them out on the right. And I have a really large cooling area. I can cool probably five cases of jars. It's like a whole... I don't know, six foot long fold out table with a big giant wood thing on it so that they do not melt the plastic of the table. That way I can do many batches in one day and they all cool and it's awesome. If you want to prep outside, again, shade really helps. Running water really helps. You'll want a bigger prep area, but then go prep. Have that staging space where about 12 jars fit where you load them into the canner. And then, of course, your cooling area. Now, a word on animals and children. You want to set this up in a way that the dogs are not underfoot or the kids are not underfoot or, you know, teach your kids don't be underfoot because you're dealing with super hot stuff out there and you wouldn't want to be in the middle of moving a jar. Dogs start playing at your feet. You get knocked over. They jar falls out of your hand. Somebody gets a second degree burn or a third degree burn. I like to make my space, I've actually just taught my dogs not to come into that space, which is one way to do it, or block them out, or, or just think about that as you make your space outside. And then the final thing is that I also make a little comfy hangout spot in mine, which for me is a camp chair and a book in a shaded area with a cross breeze. You can put a fan up for the cross breeze, or if you have a natural cross breeze, then you're, you're in business. The reason I do this is we're talking about pressure canning here. I have a giant pressure canner that goes, and I want to keep my eye on that gauge to make sure the pressure is staying above 11 PS, uh, the 11 PSI mark on mine. Yours may be different. It depends on your altitude, depends on the canner you're using. But I need to keep my eye on it, and keeping my eye on it means I need to be there. And if what I do is set it up outside and then just go hang out inside, well, it could have dropped down, gone back up, and you never know. And I really like to maintain the quality of my canning. So I've made that space where I can hang out. There is a point in the canning cycle where for about, you know, 10, 20 minutes, it's fairly stably there. 
and I'll, I'll set a timer in my house for every five minutes to go out and check while I'm prepping the next batch that goes in. And then I put that in the staging area and then we go through it again. So when I, when I'm in like motor mouth time, it, your motor mouth, motor mouth time for the canning, that's, that's how I manage that. And if I really just need to be out there, like the time that that will happen is when I have several bushels of green beans to snap. I'll sit out there in that chair. It's a nice comfy chair, snapping green beans, listening to a podcast. It's super awesome. Now, as far as which stove to use, I, as I said, I started with a camp stove and then I went to the Camp Chef Ranger blind stove. So it's like a two burner tabletop stove. I put it on a metal table because I wanted it up high. And that worked great. That worked the best for managing the the height and the intensity of the propane. And I got the adapter to go from like the little, like whatever that is, one or two pound propane tank to the 20 pound tank. And then that just, it wore out, frankly. I I wear stuff out. Jack can tell you. I blow up cars. I wear stuff out. And it's because I use them all the time. I ended up going to the Camp Chef Explorer Outdoor 2 burner on its own stand stove, which is not recommended for canning. And the reason it's not recommended for canning is you um, can't turn it down low enough. So they're worried you'll have it too high, you'll warp and ruin your canner. So take that with a grain of salt. That's what I'm using because I figured out how to make it work without warping my canner if you're going to opt for one that's like the easiest plug and play option, I'd definitely go with the Camp Chef Ranger blind stove. Uh, or if you already have something, try that. Just try it. The key is never put your canner on it without water in the canner with the burner on. And be careful about overheating too quickly where you could warp it. And just see how it works. Try a batch. Those are all of my recommendations. I hope that was helpful. Guys, if you are interested in building your tribe, finding your tribe, connecting with people, we have launched the Self-Reliance Festival fall tickets at selfreliancefestival.com. We are on early bird pricing of only 75 bucks. You will see Joel Salat in there. We are doing a chicken processing day Monday afterwards, if you're interested in that as well. We have ham radio Zero to Hero from Radio Made Easy, Thursday and Friday before. And I'm pretty sure, don't know yet for sure, that Refuge Medical will be coming and doing another set of trainings in emergency medical. It's going to be a great time. We've got awesome speakers lined up. I'm not going to reveal who they all are. We're just starting to roll them out this week. But tickets are over at selfrelianceFestival.com. The other thing I wanted to mention is that I've got a webinar up over at livingfreeintennessee.com that's a guided tour through developing your smart homestead plan. And what I mean by that is taking a smart approach to homesteading, not smart sitting up your place. And that's going to be on June 1st at 5 o'clock p.m. Central Time, livingfreeintennessee.com to find out more. Make it a great week. Great stuff from Nicole. As always, let's go ahead and talk about my segment today. Again, we're we're springing this off of a quote by Arthur C. Clarke. Human judges can show mercy, but against the laws of nature, there is no appeal. There's two things in this for me. And one is the way that it was intended, in that there are consequences to actions in the universe. There are things that happen in the universe that you, you, you don't, it's not a consequence, it just is. 
like a storm or something like that. And these are reasons to prepare. And there's no appealing against the laws of nature. If you get shot, you die. If you fall off a building, you can die. If you don't have food, you starve. Food doesn't magically show up because you pray for it or you appeal or it's just not fair. But, you know, I said about getting shot, and there's another part of this that I wanted to talk about. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. When you go through military training, a lot of that training is how to short-circuit or short-track the time it takes to recognize a threat and to respond to it without doing it improperly and, let's say, shooting somebody that you shouldn't shoot or harming somebody that you shouldn't harm. person jumps out, says, boo, they're playing a game, and you throat punch them, something like that. Like how not to do that, but how to recognize this is really happening and I need to do something about it. And this is very common for soldiers, especially their first battlefield engagement, somebody shooting at them. It takes time between bap, 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 and hearing poof, poof, poof in the dirt, right? To Except somebody's really trying to kill me right now. And then take cover, return fire, etc. Well, this is even more true in something like you're at a mall and there's a mass shooting. Or my wife and I are watching a limited series about Jeffrey Dahmer right now on Netflix. And this is, it's sort of kind of in a way like a documentary, but it's not. It's actors and it's, it's, it's telling the story in a narrative. And so when he actually got caught, they weren't looking for him. There were people disappearing, but they were spread out enough and people that, people that weren't cared enough about by the establishment that were, he was making his victims up that nobody like linked them all together and said, hey, we have a serial killer on our hands. What actually happened is one of the guys he lured back to his place managed to get away. Now, another person got away, and the freaking cops, he was all like stoned on drugs that Dahmer would use, and the cops gave him back to him. This is all true, by the way. But the second guy basically pulls enough of a fake out, gets enough distance, and ends up friggin' clubbing him in the head with something and barely manages to get out the door before he's stabbed with a knife. And, you know, he's threatened with a knife, don't leave, that type of thing. He didn't get as drugged as um, Dahmer had intended because he knew something was wrong with his drink and he stopped drinking it. He runs out, finds the police, police come back, and that's when they, like, kind of check things out. They're not really sure if the guy's, like, drunk or high or, or whatever. He's running around with no shirt on in the middle of the night screaming, help me, help me. And this isn't a part of town where bad things happen all the time. And, you know, is this a Looney Tune dude or some guy that's lost his mind? Or is this legit? And as they get in the house, they smell stink from the dead bodies and all, and they check into it, and they find pictures uh, and then they find all the stuff and, and they take him away. But in that moment, that poor man had to think at some point, this isn't actually happening. This guy's not really going to kill me. But at some point he realized, yes, he is. I am not safe here. This is not about an abundance of caution and getting out. This is life or death and I need to act. And the minute he made that decision... He looked for an opening, took it, and took a shot. There was no guarantee that doing that would work. There was no guarantee that he wouldn't get killed trying to get away. But there was a 100% guarantee that he would have been killed had he not taken that opportunity. And this is a place that in life or death situations people get into. Compliance 
has a place in certain situations. But that compliance always needs to be done with the thought of, I'm buying time looking for something I can do. Because the minute somebody points a gun at you, tells you they're going to kill you with a knife or something like that, you have to assume they're going to. You can't assume, and they, but if you do what I say, everything will be fine. That's most of the time a lie. The odds are not in your favor with compliance in that situation. Much as so much of the genocide, the murder by the state, right? Things like Nazi Germany and other horrific things that governments have done. Those things generally weren't caused by non-compliance. They were caused by compliance. And again, you're back to, but they wouldn't really do that. Well, yes, they would. They have, and they will again. Sociopaths that run governments will kill hundreds of thousands, millions of people if necessary to maintain control. I don't care what country it is. I don't care how safe you think it is. I'm not saying they're going to do it tomorrow, but I'm saying they will do it when they feel a threat to their control. And history shows that that's the case. That as governments begin to fall apart, they focus less and less on doing what they're supposed to do and more and more on maintaining power and control. And as they get to massive amounts of power and control, they have no more new powers and control to take, so then they lash out to maintain what they have. That's the situation we're in right now with our government. So when, you, when somebody tells you something like, oh, I don't know a few years ago, like, hey, when they come out with these vaccines, they're going to have these vaccine passports And you won't be able to work or go to certain stores or whatever if you don't have one. And you think, they wouldn't do that. And then next thing you know, a few months later, gee, the conspiracy theorists were not conspiracy theorists. They were plot spoilers. That's exactly what they did. And it would have went further had we not had some states with some common sense governors that said, no, we're not going to do that. Mainly South Dakota, Texas, and Florida. And that gave the rest of the country something to look at. But places like New York and California, everything they said was going to happen, happened. And then our system of government, for all its flaws, at least it's a republic, we have individual state autonomy, etc. If you were in a lot of other countries, in Europe, etc., where they don't have the level of federalism that we do, they might have individual provinces or cantons or something like that, but they don't have anywhere near the autonomy. And the federal government has a lot more control over things like mandates. Everything happened. You couldn't work without the jab. You got fined if you didn't get the jab. You couldn't go to stores without your vaccine passport. They turned off, in China, they turned off people's green lights, turned them yellow or red, even when they didn't have COVID, just because they pissed off at them for some reason or another to limit their movement and travel. So again, you would have... Now, it's easy for us to sit here and go, well, in China, of course they did. They're, but if you, if you were affluent... A, a upper middle class, Chinese citizen that lived a pretty normal life in spite of what you've been told about what life in China is like on a daily basis, you probably thought, well, they won't do that. Maybe if we have COVID, they'll lock us down because they're trying to save us or whatever, but they wouldn't just do that. Well, they did. And in all of these different issues, all these different situations, there is a lag between the signal being clear and the mind's acceptance that some response needs to be given. And especially when it's something like you go out to your car, you open the car door, and there's somebody up against your neck with a knife, there is a point where you say, this can't be happening. And it's very hard to train somebody 
without very high stress training drills to really completely shut down that lag. And that lag can be the difference between survival and death. And that's just the truth. And the same thing applies for life in general. There's going to be bad weather. Take your precautions in advance. Have a plan. Because you can't pray away the tornado. Right? I, I, you know, I don't, I don't crap on anybody's religious beliefs, no matter what they are. As long as your religious beliefs don't involve hurting other people, believe whatever you want. And, and God bless you. And, and one group is right, and everybody else apparently is wrong, uh, uh, at least based on the ideology of all these different groups. Um, but you're not going to pray the tornado away. And it always amazes me when people say something like, well, God protected us during the tornado. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that, but I, I think it's flawed logic. I think that there are things that happen in this world, prayer, spiritualism, hope, belief, whatever, matters not, other than maybe the psychology of getting through it, if that's what does it for you, fine. But there has to be an action, because nature does what nature does. And it's true in a lot of ways. Another thing I think of when I, when I hear this quote is my grandfather's words, when he was teaching me about using power tools. And he told me, a drill, a saw, a table saw, a bandsaw, a planer, a joiner, right? None of these tools have any compassion for flesh and bone and humans and blood. They're unthinking. You are in control of them. You're the one with the brain, and you better act like it. And you know what it's made me do is every time that I see somebody with missing fingers, and sometimes there's missing fingers for different reasons, right? But a lot of times, I mean, I've, I've known people that you know took two fingers off with a skill saw. Every time I see somebody in that situation, I think of my grandfather's words and his warnings about that basic safety concept of think before you act. Because these things don't think. And a saw, you know, a skill saw, a bandsaw, whatever, it doesn't care if it's cutting wood or metal or flesh and bone. It doesn't care. It just does what it does. If you are in the woods and you see something like a mountain lion staring at you, usually, unless you're on, like, I'm telling you, the guys that mountain bike where, where mountain lions are, you are risking your life every time you do it. You're a giant cat toy. But generally, if you see one, the proper response will almost always prevent it. Almost. like, But there's times when that cat's going to come, and you got to do something. you got to do something. And there is, again, that mental lack. This can't be happening to me. You're walking out of a store. Somebody walks up to you and puts a gun at your face. This can't be happening to me. But it is. Human judges can show mercy, but against the laws of nature, there is no appeal. And you might think, well, when a human is involved in that, someone that is pointing that gun or knife at you or something like that, but there is a human involved, and maybe I can reach this person, and maybe you can, but you better assume you can't. The person who's already put, pointed the gun at you, pointed the knife at you, lured you into a dangerous situation, you should assume that that person means to do you the utmost harm, and you should use whatever means you have because your survival is more important than theirs. A woman in a situation where a man is trying to rape her, that's another situation where often this can't be happening. But once that person goes into motion on that crime, you should assume they're not going to stop unless you stop them. And whatever needs to be done to stop that person, and maybe to do it in such a way that they won't ever be doing it again, God bless you, go forth and removeth thy offensive thing. That's all I'm going to say. 
Whether you pull it off, cut it off, or shoot it off, I don't care. You try to rape a woman and you get your balls and your dick blown off, you got what was coming to you as far as I'm concerned. And that's the other side of it, isn't it? The laws of nature do not have an appeal. And if you go out and you aggress on somebody and it turns out they were prepared for your aggression, you also, as the bad guy, do not get to appeal against the laws of nature. And then there's a bigger thing. We talked about government in this. The laws of nature are not separate from humans. We don't have humans over here and nature over there the way the environmentalists always try. We are natural beings. One time when I was a kid, there was a bunch of woodchucks, groundhogs, on a baseball field. And I went running out there and tried to get one of them between the, so I was between them and the fence so that like they couldn't retreat and they couldn't go forward just to see what they would do. I'll tell you what, I got one. You know what he did? He got up against that fence, and he got down, and he came after me. And I knew he meant to bite me. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to let you go. And you know what he said? Yeah, but you already did this, and I don't trust you. And it was actually pretty difficult for me to back away from that thing and let it go. And finally, he realized he had enough room, and he hauled ass. And I almost had to fight a woodchuck. I'm sure I would have won, but I'm sure I would have gotten hurt, and I probably would have ended up with rabies shots or something. I had no gun on me, had no knife, nothing. Just being a stupid teenage kid. The nature of that animal had no appeal. He ended up choosing an egress, but he didn't have to. And if he had attacked me, I would have had to respond. And I know you might think, how much damage could a woodchuck do? I don't know. Go look at their teeth and realize what you're dealing with and how strong those animals are. And no, I don't think I would have got killed, but I could have been hurt. Now, what if it had been another creature that had more ability to harm me, and I was a stupid kid and did it? Well, again, no appeal against the laws of nature. So when you aggress on humans, you're also screwing with the laws of nature. People have breakpoints, and you don't ever know how they're going to respond. My wife's bad about the road rage stuff. When somebody cuts her off and all yelling and like fingers, I'm like, do not do that shit. You don't know that that's not a violent individual that on a daily basis is willing to hurt people. And that morning their dog died, they got served with divorce papers, and they got fired. And they've just cracked. And they, they'll run, and it happens. Over road rage, somebody runs somebody else down and shoots them. Don't provoke that. Because you don't know who you're provoking on what day, under what circumstance. Because the law of nature has no appeal. And governments have never learned this lesson. No matter how big and powerful and oppressive a government can become, they are not immune to the theory of pitchforks and torches. There will always be more people than there are bureaucrats. There will always be more people than soldiers. There will always be more people than politicians. There will always be more people than police officers. And police officers and soldiers are people too. And when you governments push far enough, at least some of them will turn ranks. And violent, bloody overthrows of government are almost exclusively the result of governments avoiding the reality in their minds and in their policies that the laws of nature offer you no appeal. And if you push people far enough, they will respond with violence. Now, governments use this as well to try to provoke people into responding with violence. They use it as an excuse to crack down on entire groups. And even at times creating false violent events or provoked individual violent events to create that reality. 
But there's a point where it's not isolated. It's not this guy here who is kind of legitimate, but he just lost control and did something he shouldn't have, and this person's totally nuts, and this person's just violent using his excuse. There's a point where the masses themselves say, I'm the woodchuck pushed up against the fence, and I guess you're bigger than me, but I'm going to bite you, and I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to hurt you bad, and I'm not going to let you back off anymore. There's so much in this quote. And I guess my close for you this week with it is, it's why we prep. It's why we prep. Carry a gun, because in that situation where I'm confronted with somebody staking out my vehicle or approaching me when I'm exiting a building or something, I may not have to shoot them. I may not even draw my weapon. But I have a tool that may very well save my life. I train in you know martial arts and hand hand self defense hand to hand self defense because the gun is not always the first option or you can be in situations where you're so close that if you draw the gun you're actually offering the gun to your assailant if they know what they're doing and so you might need to break distance before you draw but we we you know we have backup power because it doesn't matter that you work so hard on the things that you have, and if the power's out for a week, some things are going to be gone and lost forever. Like your freezer full of food, or in my case, my ponds that run on pumps. Nature doesn't care. So I have backup generators and fuel. If you're hungry, nature doesn't care. If your children are hungry, nature doesn't care. So we store food. The nature of the system is creating shitty or shittier and shittier food. Lower and lower nutrition quality food. More and more mindset of you will eat the Beyond Belief burger and eat the bugs. Owning nothing and being happy. It's easy to look at this and say, no, that's not happening. But it is. And when things happen, there's no appeal to the laws of nature. And even when something is highly unnatural, it follows this rule anyway. It's not... It's not okay, and it's not nature, when somebody tries to kill you, and you've done nothing to harm them. But it still follows the same principle. There's no appeal. There's only surviving or failing to survive. And there's only escaping the situation and being overall okay, versus maybe escaping the situation but being altered for life, crippled in some way. And sometimes there's nothing you can do. But usually, there's something you can do to at least improve your odds. And that's a hell of a lot better than trying to hope it will all go away or pretend it's not really happening. With that, I hope you enjoyed this mem- this expert counsel show. I hope you enjoyed this week. I hope you got a lot out of yesterday's show about dealing with child protective services, because that fits this as well. You're dealing with a system not an individual in that situation. That system is really stacked against you, and you can't sit there and say it's not really happening. You have to be prepared for it. So, human judges can show mercy, but against the laws of nature, there is no appeal. Arthur C. Clarke, add-on by Jack Spirico, and this is one of the main reasons that we prep. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I will let you go. I'll be back Monday with our regularly scheduled programming. Hope you have a great weekend, and if you're down in Bastrop... Probably not listening to this in real time, but hopefully we're hanging out. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. 
Show you a better way. 